Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum. I'm your host, Cody Wagner. No duh, right? Here we discuss everything from car news, culture, movies, stories, games, interviews, events, and so much more. Without further delay, on with the show. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today on this Sunday special, we are reading yet another Road and Track article. They've been pumping out a lot of these sort of like because they have their new Track Club member access thing, which basically means you get limited access to well if you don't have it you get limited access to some of their best articles and you only get like three three articles a month that you can read but if you are a member you can read however many you want i'm not a member so i'm limited to three but these articles that they have under their for the most part have under their whole membership plan they're some of the best articles road and track makes. so don't be surprised that i that i come here pretty often for articles and this is probably one of their best ones Certainly one of their longer ones to date, though I have another article that was before they did all this that was, I think, the longest I've seen on their website by far, and we'll get to that in due time. But today, we're reading the article that states how the MGTC ignited America's post-war roadster obsession, the car that started the sports car boom. Let's get into it. Several years ago, I suffered another of my periodic bouts of sleepless, sweat-soaked MGTC fever and told my friend and neighbor, Chris Beebe, hopefully I got that right, that I was possibly in the hunt for one of these fine cars again. There was a long, thoughtful silence on the phone, and then he said, Have you driven one lately? No, I admitted. It's been a long time. Well, why don't you take mine for a drive and see what you think? I'll leave the keys in it tomorrow morning, and you can take it out for an all-day test drive if you want. Sounds good, I said. Truth be told, Chris's car is not a TC. It's a 1939 MGT-B, a mechanically, sim- a mechanically similar and near-lookalike predecessor to the TC. MG introduced the TB just before World War II and made a mere 379 examples before suspending production in favor of, air- of aircraft parts. It was an irresistibly attractive car, and apparently Hitler was so enraged by unfavorable aesthetic comparisons between the lovely TB and the odd, beetle-like people's car Ferdinand Porsche had recently cooked up for him that he decided to bomb England for the next five years. If that was the reason, if that was the reason that Hitler bombed England for the next five years, that, that takes the cake for the pettiest action anyone in the whole of human history has ever taken against another, another nation, let alone another human being. That is the pettiest thing I have ever heard. Dearing me, with that level of petty, Hitler should have starred in a Mean Girls movie or something. Oh my. That said, I've owned two of those beetle-shaped German cars myself, and later bought a 356B and a Boxster S. But I've yet to acquire a TC. So maybe Dr. Porsche was simply ahead of his time. Or the repair curve. Anyway, when that particular tantrum ended in 1945, MG quickly revived the design and, with a few minor changes, introduced it to the post-war world as the MG-TC. The overhead valve, four-cylinder, 1250cc engine was updated with such wonders as a timing chain tensioner and was good for 54.4 horsepower at 5,200 RPM. Taking Chris up on his generous invitation, I put on my tweed Nigel Nigel Schiffright cap, walked across the creek bridge to his garage, fired up the TB, and drove off into a fine summer mo- morning. Okay. It was all still there. The charming hollow exhaust note, the close steering wheel connected to slightly loose underpinnings, 
the pleasantly mechanical gearbox, and the beautiful view down the bonnet. Acceleration that sounds and feels more impressive than any stopwatch numbers would be inclined to verify. Dead flat cornering. No place to rest your clutch foot. I took back roads through the... Actually, there's a few captions under the images, so let me, uh, let me do those before I continue. Tall, skinny tires and an 80-year-old suspension design? Utter driving bliss. A delicate-looking shifter moves through surprisingly precise gates to shift the, the four-speed transmission. Underdash wiring was routed with typical British concern for circuit continuity. A, a wire wheel with a knockoff spinner is a perfect balance of style and function. I took back roads through the woods and past the old French cemetery, where pioneers born in Paris and Saint-Germain now rest after clearing the Wisconsin Township's first farmlands. It felt good to be alive. Some of the rougher roads, however, began to provide a monotonous wallop to the spine. And after about 10 more miles, I turned around and headed for home. Chris called later and asked how far I drove. About 27 miles, I admitted. That was far enough, wasn't it? Yes, it's not a long-distance car for me, unless we get some of our roads repaved. But it was wonderful just to be in the car for a short drive, and it looks great in the garage. Chris said his trips tended to be short ones for exactly the same reason. Oddly enough, in 1982, the two of us had borrowed a dark green TC belonging to Chris's brother Joe, and had driven it on a 2,600-mile back road trip from Wisconsin to Road Atlanta for the SCCA fall runoffs, and I recalled the ride as firm but fairly comfortable. Were we simply younger then? Probably. A qu I, I don't mean to be rude, but probably. A quick trip to my small MG reference library solved the mystery. Before the post-war TC was released, MG engineers decided to redress some complaints about the earlier model. They widened the cockpit by 4 inches at the rear at the rear door pillar for more elbow room, replaced the twin 6-volt batteries beneath the luggage compartment with a single 12-volt mounted in the, in the engine bay, and best of all, softened the springs and installed better shock absorbers. They all shed the metal-on-metal metal sliding trunnions, or truncheons hmm, in favor of rubber bush shackles. It had a hint more body lean in corners, but not so much that the average Buick owner in the U.S. would notice. And what Americans wanted was suddenly important. England was bombed out, tired, and broke after the war, having nearly exhausted itself defeating evil, and, and it needed viable exports to rebuild the economy. MG, like other factories, was told to sell goods overseas or risk having its supply of raw materials cut off. And hardly any English car manufacturer had failed to notice that visiting Yanks had been charmed by Britain's spare and romantically jaunty two-seaters so different from anything they'd owned or, dry, or driven. A very few servicemen had even shipped them home before hostilities broke out in 1939. Chris Beebe's TB was one of them, an officer at the embassy, perhaps. There was a popular myth that American GIs loved MG sports cars so much they brought them home with them from the war. I suppose this would have been possible for Ike or General Hap Arnold, but in my army experience, the average GI is lucky to make it home with his duffel bag intact. A more likely scenario is that American servicemen were charmed by these cars, remembered them fondly, and were receptive when import models started, fil started filtering into the US a few years later. And then there were legions of potential customers who had never been in the military at all, but were simply struck dumb with the desire the first time they saw one. American F1 champion Phil Hill noted racer, so, and noted racer and car journalist Denise McCluggage, hopefully I got that right, 
each told me they'd spotted a TC somewhere and immediately turned their lives upside down to acquire one that very day. The same thing happened to the great jazz singer Mel Tomei, or Tormé, hopefully I got that right. In his autobiography, it wasn't all. Velvet, Velvet Mel tells us that he saw one in the window of a Manhattan car dealership and bought it on the spot for $1,750. Mel's good friend, the legendary drummer Buddy Rich, took one, took one look at the car and said, Gotta have it. And they drove and they drove back to the dealership and Buddy brought one or bought one. I can't think of another car with this kind of struck by lightning cloud, except for perhaps the first Ford Model A in 1927, another highly affordable car that had movie stars and captains of industry standing in line to buy one. The Jaguar E-Type had this allure too, but its price slowed down impulse buying. The Model A and the TC were, were affordable to almost anyone who wanted a car. Except for me. In 1967, I spotted a red TC on a used car lot in the small town of Wowanoke, Wisconsin. Hopefully I got that right. I'm pretty sure I've heard that name before, just never seen it spelled out. While riding my Honda Super 90 home from college, the window sticker said $1,100. Once home, I asked my parents if I could get a bank loan for the car. They gave the idea three seconds of careful consideration, and then said no. In unison. I might as well have asked to rent a villa in Tuscany for the summer. So I rode the Honda 90 that year, and TC ownership remained an elusive dream. Why the desire for this somewhat impractical car with a top speed of around 73 miles per hour? Well, the looks, of course. In my own eyes, the car has proportions that can't be improved. Once described as looking like a coffin sitting on four harps, its rakish wing lines are perfectly accentuated by its vertical radiator and those tall 19-inch wire wheels. And we can unaffectedly say wings rather than fenders because they actually look like wings. The TC's body is nearly equal parts arrow straight lines and graceful curves. A design that has ne a design that has never looked so inelegant no matter the era. And then there's the romantic glow of the history. For those of us who grew up in the aftermath of World War II, early MGs will always be fused with images of the sacrifice and glory we associate with the Battle of Britain. Especially in an aviation conscious brain like mine, perhaps that's because I saw I once saw a photo of RAF hero Douglas Bader, I hope I really got that right sitting in his new MGTA at some English aerodrome. Uh, or because director Guy Hamilton had the good taste to put Christopher Plummer in an MGPA four-seater for a rendezvous with the lovely Susanna York in the epic film Battle of Britain. More insidious yet is the framed print that, that's hung above my de desk, that's hung above my desk for the past 30 years, a painting by James Dietz of an attractive WAAF in a, I feel like that's, I feel like that's an acronym for something, but I'm not sure what. And a red MGTB chatting with a young RAF pilot in a flight line of Spitfires. Those two machines and people perfectly symbolize the era. Actually, the T-Series cars seem to fit seamlessly into any era of English history, as if they've always been there. You could probably have parked one in front of the Globe Theater in 1599, and Shakespeare wouldn't have noticed anything amiss on his way to work. It's a design that doesn't offend any particular century's sense of craft or architecture. Timeless, I guess, is the word. One enduring charm of the TC is that a reasonably skilled home mechanic can fix practically everything on the car without any diagnostic equipment more complex than a dwell meter. And even that's unnecessary if you have a decent gap gauge and maybe a 12-volt test light. I've done two MGB restorations without farming out anything except 
machine shop pork and paint. The TC is similarly straightforward, though the wood framing of the body shell can require a few woodworking skills. Recently, I attended an annual vintage sports car hill climb at the nearby town of New Glarus, Wisconsin. New Glarus, or is it Glarus? And, and lo, there appeared on the starting line a black 1947 TC that looked like Phil Hill had just driven it out of the showroom. It belonged to a gentleman named David Kerr from Lincolnwood, Illinois. Camera gear and string back driving shoes in hand, I met him at his home a week later. As a northern suburb of Chicago, Lincolnwood is not the first place you'd look for a rustic Cotswold-like setting, but there are miles of parks, woods, and grand old homes built along the swooping and curvy Sheridan Road, which runs beside Lake Michigan. Out in the sunlight of the back alley, the TC looked remarkably straight and crisp. It has an estimated 12,000 miles on the odometer, and David told us it has spent most of its life in a private car museum, taken apart only in 1968 for fresh paint and to replace some of the more perishable parts. The block, cylinder head, and engine compartment still have their original paint, a gray-green hue that Kerr describes as battleship green. The car was, an ori was originally purchased at J.S. Inskip? J.S. Inskip? I hope I got that right. Incorporated in Manhattan and owned by Ann Bradley of Southboro, Massachusetts until 1967. It changed hands three more times before David bought it in 2018. A pull on the small black choke and adjacent starter knob had the engine coughing to life and settling into a nice steady idle. I graciously let David drive through the heavy city traffic until we reached the greener pastures of Sheridan Road, where I took over the right-hand driver's seat. Like Chris's TB, this car has a smooth, succinct four-speed gearbox with synchro in the top three gears, normal clutch actuation, and driver-friendly torque. You can rev it, but the engine also pulls well at low RPM without complaint. The big blue metal steering wheel sits close to your chest, and the pedals are close to your feet. Steering precision has never been the TC's strong point, and most I've driven are about twitchy, loose, and slightly heavy in slow tight corners. Many fixes have been tried over the years. This car has a Tomkins steering kit installed. It's better than most, but still unlikely to instill envy in the hearts of Lotus landowners. Handling, however, is quite good, limited, limited mostly by the grip of the tall, narrow 19-inch tires. It stays flat in corners and has a remarkably compliant ride, feeling properly sprung for its weight and less jittery than the TB. Overall, it's charming and old-fashioned on the road, which is a large part of the appeal and maybe always has been. Even in the late 40s, no one mistook the TC for a flying saucer or some other futuristic marvel. And on the balance beam between useful transportation and historical artifact, the TC would come down pretty heavily on the side of the ladder. It's been derided by critics as being 10 years out of date when introduced. Despite the beautiful symmetry and purposeful design of the Speedo, achieving 100 miles per hour in a TC is the stuff of fantasy. Kerr's MG still wears its aftermarket rear bumper and dual taillights designed by Inskip, or yeah, Inskip, the dealer that first sold this car. But then the T-Series cars were, to some extent, the product of a car company and a country simply trying to stay alive. The first of the family, the, the 1936 TA, was a Great Depression-driven compromise intended to save MG from a financial ruin by using ordinary sedan parts to make a cheaper car than its more exotic predecessors. Ditto for the much improved, but still affordable TB. And the TC, 
was meant to capture foreign markets in the cash-strapped years after the war. They did it with so much panache. I, there's a word missing here. They did it with so much panache is the reason America developed a vibrant sports car movement and a love for the mark that has never abated. And why some of us want one even now. The TC still speaks to me of rebirth and civilization at the end of darkness. A fulfillment of Churchill's promise of Churchill's promised move into those sunlit uplands. And that seems quite enough weight for one old car to carry. What I find most remarkable about the T, well, the TA, the TB, and the TC is that they don't look like sports cars. Like, they don't look like Cunningham C1s, they don't like C1 Corvettes, they don't look like the Austin Healy's or the Nash Healy's. They don't look like how we imagine, how we know sports cars to have looked in the late, very late 40s and early 50s. Yet, this was the car that started the sports car boom in America. Despite looking, honestly, not pretty much nothing like a sports car outside of it having a long, a long hood and a short rear proportion, it doesn't look anything like the sports cars we would recognize today. If anything, it looks like the 1930s idea of a compact car. Sort of like, I would say a Honda Del Sol, but no, more like a Honda Civic Coupe. But yeah, it, but because the proportions are very similar to that of modern sports cars, just very squared off, and it is smaller than a lot of cars from the 30s and some cars from the 40s, it is kind of, I don't want to say the original Miata. No, I don't want to say quite that, but if the thinking of a sports car had to start anywhere, if there had to be five cars that really kicked it off, this would have to be in the top five. Because while I, I, visually speaking, it doesn't, it doesn't exactly look like a sports car. Those proportions to me, that long hood, that cabin towards the back and the short rear, that is the iconic indicative sports car proportion. That is the view, profile or otherwise, of a sports car. There's no denying that. It might not, it probably doesn't drive like a lot of modern sports cars. And that is to say, maybe not fantastically, but for a car of its era, that's got to be a hoot, even if it doesn't have much power. I'm not saying I want one because I'm not sure that I do, but honestly, I kind of want to drive one too because that's a very, it's, it's, it's just so fascinating. I just can't get over how it just, it's, it looks so unlike a sports car. Because I watched the video, uh, I watched the Chris Harris video on Top Gear of the very first Porsche that came before the 356B. I can't remember, what was it? The, well, the other name, the VW KB Type 60. I might have that order wrong, but that, that Porsche that is debatably not a Porsche, that's another good example to me of, of a proper sports car. And that was, I think, just, just in the 30s. And then you had this, which is a, it's a completely different car. And then you have, you know, the auto union from the 30s. Those are cars, give or take, that I would expect. Those are cars that more closely align themselves with the sports car design, the sports car styling. But this, this would be like taking a 1930s Dodge and trying to turn it into a period correct sports car. That's kind of, that's kind of what it is. It's those old... It's those old coaches, really. Those those internal combustion-powered coaches from the 30s. But athletic, that is so... It's so interesting. Really quite fascinating. 54 horsepower is not that much, but for the 30s, that's not bad. That's pretty good going. That's relatively powerful. Yeah, you know, I'd love to drive one of those one day. That would be quite the experience. And really quite an article, because I'm, I'm surprised that... Because Rotatrack had, I think, a race-prepped version 
for their like the best driving like best driving car of all time, and this this made it into like a top five, and it's so surprising because again you wouldn't think a car, give or take, with its suspension technology from the forties, well hell the thirties would make it into one of the best driving into an article that talks about vehicles that have the best that give you the best driving experience or one of the best driving experiences you can find, but. There's got to be something really, really special about the way that car is set up, or at the very least, what it means, its historical value, and how different it was from cars of the era in order to fit. That is one of the founding fathers of sports carism, to put it that way. I'm not, I'm not saying it's the definitive sports car. I'm not, I don't know enough to say that it is, but I think I'm, it's safe to say it's definitely within a shout. It is within a shout of being within the top five, for sure. Anyway, though, what do you guys think of the MGTC? Do you think it's just a boring old car that looks kind of ugly? Or is there a lot, or does it have a much deeper meaning for you? Let me know. Actually, uh, in order to make comments on Podbean, I found this out recently, you have to get the Podbean app. So if you don't want to make comments because you don't want to get the Podbean app, I don't blame you because I only got it to reply to someone else. Because I saw a comment and it was really late. It was like 29 days ago when I saw it. I was like, oh, well, I, I didn't even realize. Okay, it's Podbean. Allow people to make comments that does that allow people to make comments on the browser or on desktop. You shouldn't have to have an app for that. Jeez. Anyway, let me know what you think. If you enjoyed it, I hope you did. Please make sure to like, share, and follow the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, comment, share, and consider subscribing. And if you do subscribe, hey, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Please make sure you hit the little notification bell and then all notifications that way you're notified every time I upload. If you don't want to listen to this podcast, on the Podbean mobile app, but you do want to listen on the road, hey, no problem, boot up wherever you get your podcast. type in Cody's Car Conundrum and choose the episode you want to listen to. I will see you all next time. Before we end, I want to inform you all that you can now monetarily support this podcast and indeed the entirety of Cody's Car Conundrum with Kofi. Uh, well, it might be coffee, but it's spelled K-O-F-I, and that's weird, so I say it Kofi. In any case, Kofi is an alternative to Patreon where, beautifully and as God intended, you, the supporters, don't have to pay a fee, like on Patreon, to support my work. So if you like what I do and want to see me cover, slash talk about, slash make a video regarding something specific, or want me to branch out into other areas of car culture, then head on over to ko-fi.com forward slash Cody's Car Conundrum, where you can make a minimum donation of $5 towards me and the brand. In return, you'll be helping me afford new equipment, afford upgrades to my existing tools, you'll receive polls asking what topic you want me to dive into next, you'll get to see voted and non-voted content before public release, various forms of recognition for your support, and the ability to vote on merch designs you'd like to see on the Teespring store. And now it's time to close. You've just listened to me probably ramble about some cars if I'm being honest. If you've enjoyed me passionately talking about lumps of metal on wheels, then why don't you follow me on Twitter at Cody Carr, C-O-N-U-N-D-R-M, or check out my website, www.codyscarconundrum.com, for articles and other car-related content. If you have any questions or would like to become a sponsor, send an email to drtaffy777 at gmail.com and put sponsor in the subject line. Make sure to follow me here or any other platform so you don't miss out on more full throttle content. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode.